This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are deep into understanding Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, the best investors in the world who basically are trying to, um, in the most reliable possible way, produce high returns with low risk. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. It's a real, it's real interesting how this goes. I mean, I, everybody knows stocks outperform every other asset that there is by, you know, exponentially. And, and yet the problem with stocks is that they, if you just buy and hold, particularly in times like this, where the market just keeps going up and up and up and up and it looks, feels like a helium balloon waiting for a pen, mm-hmm. you, you, you run the risk of being in a portfolio that drops 50% just when you most desperately don't want it to. And, um, and might not recover for 10 years or even as long as, say, 26 years, which has happened once. That's a terrifying prospect. It is a long time to break even, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, think about the people that are putting their money in a 30-year T-bill. At In, in some parts of, this, of the world, they're putting their, their money into a 100-year T-bill at a 1% interest rate or a 0% interest rate. It's like, what? So, I, I mean, it's just like you want to have a reliable way of, of doing well with your capital, but n- you want to be able to do well in your lifetime, right? Not 200 right. years. Right. So this is the way. As far <laughs> as every bit of research I've been able to do, the best investors in the world do this. And this is the only way that I've ever seen. This is the only way this that being... you can have replicable results. But by this, I mean investing by buying something that has value uh, that you know, you you know within a range, you understand what it's worth, and you pay substantially less than that for it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk today about uh, the Daily Journal meeting that Charlie Munger just led. And one thing that he actually answered in that meeting was basically like, what is value investing? And he said, it's buying something for less than its value like period whether that's a crazy growth stock and it was in the context of like is it possible to even be a value investor in in this market right now and and so he meant you know even if it's a crazy growth stock even if it's something that you're paying more than like a typical valuation might tell you as long as you think you're paying less than what its actual value is that's value investing i thought that was really interesting and then i I, I think Warren goes farther and, and says that there is no other kind of investing than value investing. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's back up a little and, and talk about what we're talking about here. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <Okay. laughs> um, so there were two big sort of value investing guru events in the last few days. Um, 
which almost never happens. It was kind of a crazy week. So we had Charlie Munger talking at the Daily Journal annual shareholder meeting um, on Wednesday last week, if I have that right. The Daily Journal is Charlie's, I say Charlie's company. It's a public company, but he he owns it. He's the chairman and... I don't think he really like runs it. I don't think he's really. Oh, no, he doesn't run it. Yeah. I think he even says multiple times, like, I don't really have anything to do with this business. And and interestingly enough, I also really don't know what these people do. (laughs) So So if you uh, if you're somebody who who missed that, you can go watch the video. Yahoo Finance streamed it. So if you just look on online or on YouTube or whatever for um, Yahoo Finance Daily Journal meeting 2021. It'll come up. It's about two hours, and it's uh, it's well worth the time. And then the other thing that my dad's referring to is that the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter came out recently that Warren Buffett writes every year. And Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are investing partners, have been most of their lives, and um, and Charlie Munger is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. So, and the the Berkshire letter is an annual event that's m- much uh, awaited by all the fans, and it uh, all these letters are posted up on the Berkshire Hathaway website. You just go to you know Google Berkshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. and you can't miss it. It's like right there in front of you, chairman letters. When you it's click the that most link. bare bones website, and it makes me love them so much. Oh yeah, it has nothing. They do not just... expend money on that no. website. <laughs> a handful of links. You click on the link, and then there you are with a pile of links, more. And um, yep. And you click on the year you want to read, and those letters. I'm sure we've referred to these many times here over the five years, but they are just an education of their own. If you want to to get a really good education in rule one style investing, what we call rule one investing, that's the place to go. And by the way, the reason we call it rule one investing- I would call it Buffett style investing. I call it rule one investing. If you're going to go read Buffett's letters, you're learning about Buffett investing. Rule one investing is what I call it. (laughs) 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 And the reason I do is because- they're, they these guys don't really want to call it value investing, although that's the most common thing everybody calls it, because value investing connotes a different kind of investing that goes back to Buffett's mentor, Ben Graham, who in the Depression in World War II was able to buy many, many companies uh, for less than the cash that they have on their books net the debt, right? Subtract the debt. And you have cash and you're paying less than that for the business. And he would buy 100 of them, 200 of them at a time that he called kind of cigar butt investing, picking up stuff that's nearly free. And it goes along with a fundamental of good rule one investing, which is don't lose money. The, the fundamental rule of investing is don't lose money. Don't don't worry or focus on making money. Don't try to make money. Where does Just, that rule come from, Dad? Oh, that's Warren Buffett. Yeah. Right there. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Buffett's got two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And what we what we find is that most people don't take that seriously. They they actually are out there trying to make money. And it's really hard, actually, to try not to try to make money. I mean, because, come on, course, aren't we all? Please. And we are. And that's a mistake. <laughs> that's a fundamental <laughs> error that is corrected by remembering that rule number one is the only rule of investing. Don't lose money. And if that's true, then why would you consider anything at all about 
trying to make money when the whole rule is don't lose it. And if you think about that another way, Manesh Prabhai says, oh, we just want free lottery tickets. Same idea. That's all there is. We don't know where it's going to go. We might win big, but we won't lose anything or we won't lose much. And that idea has got to permeate your consciousness. It's got to be something you just, are, your whole investing world is colored by those colored glasses that you're looking through. And when that happens, you become a much, much better investor. You stop making mistakes. That's mm. the key thing. Mm. And when you stop making mistakes, then the stuff that you get right, and it might be four out of 20, but if you don't lose on those 16, those four will make you rich. Yeah. Um, again, at the Daily Journal meeting, that reminds me that Charlie was asked about Sequoia, which is a venture capital firm. And he, uh, I don't even remember what the question was exactly, but it was basically like you recently said Sequoia was the best investment firm in the world. Well, it was a, it's a mutual fund. Sequoia is a venture capital fund. Sequoia is a mutual fund. Okay, then he's talking about something completely different because his answer was all about a venture capital fund. Really? Pretty sure? Okay, now because, I'm like 80% sure. Okay, because what happened um, back in the 60s is that Buffett shut off. He, he had 12 limited partnerships that he used to build his wealth with, right? He would create a partnership, uh, initially friends and family. And then um, he added another one and another one as his reputation grew. And he managed this money. And, um, and, this is, and he made a fortune because he took 25% of the profits. Mm, yeah. out of the partnership, and he just didn't charge but a fee. But he didn't charge any fees, yeah. Right, no fees. And by the way, I, I mean, this is a worldwide podcast, so everybody be sure and check with your securities people because it's different everywhere. But in the United States, back when Buffett did this was the 1950s, when I did something similar to that, it was the 1980s, and it was still okay to do it. You could have a small number of unsophisticated investors, and Buffett actually makes that point in his letter this time, that these were unsophisticated investors that he started with. And this is a very big no-no as far as the SEC is concerned. Is it, oh my God, you wouldn't want to have unsophisticated investors. By the way, they consider an unsophisticated investor all of you. Doesn't matter how much you've studied, doesn't matter how many how much knowledge you have about investing. What matters is how much money do you have? That's how the SEC decides you're sophisticated. Yeah. And the, re the reason they do that is because they assume that if you've got $2 million, which is the minimum degree of sophistication required for a hedge fund, they call it a qualified investor, they assume that you've got the money to hire someone who actually is sophisticated and can make a decision for you. Okay, I get it. On the other hand, they have foreclosed this avenue for both the person that's investing with a Warren Buffett and the new Warren Buffett himself. And because, how does this come to Sequoia? What was Sequoia? Oh, how was so Sequoia I'm relating to, to the early stage stuff? I'll get there. I'll get there. Hmm? I'm, tr I'm trying to get there, but I just <laughs> want to make this point. I want you all to go write your, your local state. If you're in the United States, write or call your, um, uh, the, uh, God, what do they call it? This, the, the uh, securities people at your state. Just look it up in the state.gov website and there'll be securities. And get an email to them, get a letter to them and tell them that they've tightened up regulations too much. And now you can only have, for example, six unaccredited investors in Georgia before you have to get licensed. And in the moment you get licensed, 
you can't have anything but qualified investors unless you register a public offering. And it, it's just ridiculous. And it has gotten so tight that you can't do what Warren Buffett did and you can't do what I did anymore, which is to go out to people who are unsophisticated investors, get a small number of them, put in a small amount of capital with you and start to build your reputation and gradually get more and more capital. So, so any it's a case, good Buffett, thing that everybody oh, listening to this podcast is learning hmm. how to invest on their own, right? Right. But I just right. see this as a, such a wonderful way to get wealthy. Okay. Onward. Yeah. So um, Warren Buffett has 12 partnerships-ish, I think he wrote, and he combined them all into one by you know 1962 or three. And by the late 60s, he was, I think, a bit fed up with managing people's money who kept insisting that he keep doing 36% a year every year in and out when he preferred to sit in cash. And so he decided to go out after a really good year and he closed the Buffett partnerships, um, all our colors of the Buffett partnership. And he recommended people do one of two, one of three things. Number one, they could F off, which was actually, he didn't say it like that, but that was one choice. Go do whatever you want with your money. Choice number two, put it into this little company that Buffett was loading everything he owned into called Berkshire Hathaway at $16 a share. It's now $350,000 a share or something. Um, or number three, put it into the new fund being started up by his friend, the Sequoia Fund. And this is a mutual fund that ran for, man... Um, I don't know, 30 years, 30, it's still going. Who was that? I'm trying to remember his name. It was a really famous, really Super famous, famous investor. Guy. So we'll, we'll hear about it multiple times over. I wonder if Sequoia really was quickly. the name of that fund. I assume so, because they did about 18% well, so a year for 30 years. It they totally could be. Yeah, we, I, we should Google that. But I just looked up the question that I was thinking of from the meeting, it's a hundred percent about Sequoia Capital, which is a venture capital company oh. in, in Menlo Park. Oh. Oh. Um, oh. So <laughs> the whole answer is about venture capital. <laughs> it's definitely it's about early stage investing. Oh my God. So there were a couple questions about um where he brought it up. And the first one was asking whether it's better to invest early in a company. And this is a question that we actually contemplate constantly. Um, on this podcast. Is it better to invest early in a company or wait until a company is a clear winner of a mature industry? And what he says is that just he and Warren are way better at buying mature industries than at tacking at like finding startups. And he says, like Sequoia is good at finding startups. He says they're the, probably the best VC operation. They're really good at early stage investing. Um, and he says, for some folks, early stage investing is best. And for other folks, what I've done in my life is best. And then the follow-up question was that he said, you've said recently, Sequoia is the greatest investing firm ever. Do you think this time in the market, I'm completely paraphrasing all of this, by the way. Um, do you think this time in the market is different and conventional, conventional valuation is dead? Or is this like 99 and it's all going to crash? And what he says is, I don't try and compete with Sequoia. Um, he says, you can argue that I got close to Sequoia when Lee Lu and Munger got into BYD, 
when it was very small. And he says it was not a startup, but it was so small and thinly traded, we were buying into a venture capital type investment, but in the yeah. public market. So he says, with that yeah. one exception, I've stayed out of Sequoia's business because they're so much better at it than I would be. And I don't know how to do it the way they do it. I just like over and over every answer. I think the reason he's so venerated at 97 is he just constantly says what he doesn't know. He's not somebody who's right. trying to put himself forward as an expert, like probably the world's foremost expert on value investing. And he's not trying to put himself forward as an expert. He's saying, I don't know how an early stage investor does this so well. Like I wouldn't be able to do it. I stick to what I'm good at. Right. And he just, he just straight up, he doesn't try to pretend like, oh, if I went into early stage, I'd be able to figure it out. He's like, I'd suck at it, basically. I just love that he's so attentive to never saying that he to, thinks he could do to something. Truth. He's so attentive to truth. And yeah. I, I don't think he would deny he's one of the best in value investors in the world. No question. Yeah. Right? No, no. I think he believes that of himself. And by the way, to, to catch up, you're right. Sequoia, I'd completely forgotten. Sequoia is a, a Menlo, you know, probably Sand Hill road venture capital company that got early stage and uh, I don't know how early stage they got in different things, but they, they got into Google. That's for sure. They're very well Don known. Valentine. They've been around a last long year. time. I don't know if you caught that. Cause you're sorry, I didn't. What did you say? Time not even listening to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Don Valentine is the founder of it and he died uh, last year. Oh, so um, hard to say how they'll go right from here. It's oh, it's a huge who's operation. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. But I, I guess Valentine really hasn't had control of it for 20 years or something. So it's rocking and rolling. And that is different than Sequoia Mutual Fund, which is what I thought Charlie was talking about. Should have So that one is called attention. Sequoia. The other one. The Mutual Fund. The mutual fund that you were thinking of that came out of the early yeah, Berkshire, the not Bill, early Berkshire, the early Buffett partnership. Yep. And it's is Bill Ruane that Bill Ruane, that's yes, who it is. Who is phenomenal. So there's two Sequoias and they, they're in very different businesses, right? So the, the Sequoia Mutual Fund, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, they're in the business that I'm in. I'm in the business of, of what we call rule one investing or, or value investing. Um, and again, just real quickly, the reason we call it rule one investing and not value investing is because there's this connotation that value investors have to buy companies when they're like at a, at a single digit P.E. ratio or something. Right. <clears throat> and we don't. I mean, we owned Google. We've owned Apple. Um, you know, it's just we're looking for things of value, we're, what we can buy that's cheaper than it's than what it's worth. It's it's Munger. Mungerism. It's Mungerism. Really? Right. <laughs> OK, don't call it rule one just because I okay. do. Rule one. <laughs> Fair enough. It's but what good. made me think of that question, or his answer to that question, was that you said you look to not lose money. And in the way that you think of that is if you own 20 companies and 16 of them don't do much, but they don't go down, and the other four are big winners, that's a really early stage investor type of structure. That's a really venture capital type of no. structure. It really is. They buy no. a small number of companies. Yeah, this is just fact. They tend to buy a small number of companies in a fund. 
if one or two hit it big, that is everything they ask for. And then if eight of them, well, this is different than the don't fail. lose money thing. If eight of them fail. If eight of them fail. <laughs> right. They Pretty don't care. When now that we think okay, about that it. Okay, that is different, to be fair. But the point is the other one to two right. pay for all the rest. That part is similar. That part I've is done, similar. I've done venture capital back really right. Uh, you were about you were about four years old or so. So I was doing some venture capital. And the, the key to it was um, that when you win, you win gigantically huge. It's like you, yeah, you yeah. win, you know, 80% per year compounded for a decade kind yeah. of win, right? Yeah, kind of thing. huge. And that makes up for the losers. But the average venture capital, the not average, the successful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, um, I read once, I don't know how true this is, but I read once they're hitting around 28 to 30% compounded over time, which is phenomenal. I mean, for, for VC, that's like what they need to be hitting. For the, I mean, amount of risk that the amount of investors risk that investors take, taking, right. that's what it, that's what an investor generally would expect from right. a venture capital fund. And by the way, if you wanted to know if you were going to go out and be an entrepreneur and you wanted to go raise money from a venture capitalist, from an angel investor who is essentially a single office venture capitalist willing to um, willing to put their own money into deals and and offer some substantial uh, help on the board. If you were going to go do that, you would want to probably understand why they're going after such high chunks of your business, right? I mean, why 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 do they demand 63% of your company or 37% of your company? How do they come up with that number? And this is this is the answer is that they're trying to figure out uh, how much of that they they need to take in order to get the kinds of returns they got to get when it wins. Is essentially how it boils down. Did you ever do any M and A stuff where they, or uh, any of your legal work where you did venture capital and they they were trying to figure out how much to to own of this business? Uh, I mean, as a low level associate, no, I never got to chat on them with their valuation structures. But I mean, I did a lot of deals where we were buying chunks of companies or selling companies. Yeah. It's, no, it's but I mean, that stuff happens before it gets to the lawyers usually. I mean, the entrepreneurs always feel like they're getting screwed um, or often feel that way um, back in the days when I was doing it because there wasn't anywhere near the kind of understanding about venture capital that there is today. Now it's, it's phenomenal. I, I think that there's one thing that makes America great in the world and will keep us great in the world. It's that we have the largest private venture capital available for entrepreneurs by orders of magnitude to anyone else in the world. Yeah, yeah. And the only China, China obviously has, is, is government-run capitalism, if you will. I mean, sort of, I guess, which is a classic definition of fascism, if you, if you look it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're a communist, quote, communism, but they run in a fascist country. And um, they essentially could be the venture capital arm of these new ventures, but they're not. They, they bank them. They, they put banking money out there, but they've sort of left it to the entrepreneurs to, to put venture money out. And uh, eventually they'll catch up with us in that regard. I'm, I'm quite sure. They've got so many you know, wealthy people that have been gotten wealthy over the last three decades that that money then turns around and becomes venture capital money. And that's just how it works in, in, in a capitalistic system is that your risk capital comes from people who have gotten rich, 
So, you know, hopefully we'll have more and more of those because that's where jobs come from. That's, I put it more, more succinctly, that's where real wealth comes from. I mean, a government can go create jobs. Here, dig this ditch. Here, you know, chop trees down and make a trail in the forest. That's a job that the government can create. What the government doesn't do at all is create wealth. They don't know how right. to do that. Right, right. So you create wealth when you invest in Apple Computer and suddenly you have cut out every secretarial job in the country <laughs> and and every executive is doing their own secretarial work or, or yeah. you've chopped out all of this design stuff that used to be done on paper or you're a Pixar and all of a sudden you you can build a movie in your studio. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on what, what uh, entrepreneurs have done in this country to create wealth and that makes us so strong and so competitive. Um, and we should never forget that. It, it is a gigantic advantage in the world. I and, completely, uh, a thousand percent agree with that. We never want to have a taxation structure that penalizes that. Well, and Charlie like, got a question. I don't remember the exact question. Something like, you know, like, how can we really trust our money being in Chinese companies? Like, you have a lot of money in Chinese companies. How do you trust that that's not going to be, oh, it was related to Jack Ma being disappeared for a while and um, and they were asking, like, do you worry about BYD's assets being nationalized or the company itself being nationalized? Right. right. And what he said basically was these the Chinese are very smart and they have created a system in which people have become extremely wealthy in a communist country that is run like a capitalist country, which as you said, is, is fascism by the definition. He didn't say that part. And, um, and because they clearly have this plan to create millionaires and billionaires and for the wealth even to be passed down, he pointed out that they don't have a wealth tax in a communist country. They don't right. have a wealth tax right. that he thinks that, their goal is to not nationalize companies. They want to make sure that people are incentivized to continue to create wealth in the way that you just described. Yeah. I mean, I still think like there's a danger just because you never know, but I, I get his point. And I, I well, think it's just well because taken. if you own, I don't know how Charlie owns um, BYD. He may own it directly through Lilu via Hong Kong or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it might be a legitimate stock. I, um, I mean, by that, I mean, they actually own the stock of the company BYD. But when you own stock in Tencent and JD and Alibaba, you don't own the stock that is the company. What, and many people, they don't realize that. Yeah, we've talked about that here. The, yeah, the, you own um, a VIE that's sitting in the Cayman Islands, which has a right to the earnings. Yeah. And it's illegal in China. So <laughs> can they... Could they pull the cork on all these investors? Sure. All they, they could you know, do it tomorrow. that'd be an interesting question to ask Charlie about. Maybe we should submit that one next year. I, I think what he would say is what he said. Uh, why would they? I mean, why, why would <laughs> yeah, they kill the true. goose? That's true. Why would they yeah. kill the goose? The second, you're right. The second they do that, every non-Chinese investor never invests in a Chinese company. Exactly. Again. Done. Until so they change all that something. outside capital just disappears. So yeah, yeah, that. that's true. That's true. Very They're very practical, I think, is what he was trying to say. Yes. Very, uh, um, very logical and practical. So what else did Charlie say that you did that struck you? I mean, because, I'm, you know, we've watched Charlie for 
a million years and don't really expect anything mag amazingly new uh, out of what he's talking about. Yeah, I don't think he said a lot of amazingly new stuff. I think it was short answers, I noticed. He really didn't go on on anything. Mm -hmm. And he pull, he finished it right at the you know hour and 50 minute mark and then gave a little closing talk and um it was i don't think he really said that much that was like really extraordinary that hadn't been said before what stuck right. out to me was just because this is something i care about he answered a few questions about culture of a company about management and he said multiple times how important the culture of a company is how important the management is um he mentioned that costco's culture is really what propelled it to be the incredible company that it is today yes. and he said that jeff bezos is in his opinion either the or one of the greatest businessman that has ever been around. Yep. So he, you know, I, I notice when people talk about that stuff, cause that's what I look for in companies. So that yep. was really interesting to me to hear somebody who's so, uh, like not, <laughs> he's not somebody who's out there like chatting about ESG and mission and purpose led companies and all that kind of right. stuff. So when he talks about, company culture what he means is a company as he said straight in the beginning a company that sells things to people that that are good products that make their lives better and that's it well a couple of points here that i i picked up one is that charlie was very clear that we're that the stock market in the united states is in a in a bub major bubble yeah um and that nobody knows how long it's going to last and yeah. that's, that's the two things. It's like, yes, it's a bubble. It's looking for a pen and nobody knows where that pen is. Yeah. Um, number one. And the second thing that came out of Buffett's letter, which we haven't talked much here, but it's really worth, worth checking out, is how reticent Buffett was to, um, to say anything really about um, who's going to follow him if he dies. Oh, um, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Why he's not paying dividends? I mean, that uh, people at, at Barrons were like, "You should be paying dividends and drive the stock price and all this." And uh, you know, honestly, there was a there was a pretty good get together with Guy Spear following that meeting. And one of the things that came out of it was um, over on Clubhouse was that Warren Warren is talking his book. I mean, Warren wants to Warren wants some good companies to buy, and they're not buyable at this market. Number one. So why pump up the market? Why would you, if you want to buy hamburger, why would you pump up the price of hamburger? You wouldn't. And the second thing is, in lieu of buying other good companies, he'll buy his own. And he bought a nice chunk of it last year. He did, And yeah. why would you pump up the company? Why would you pay dividends and get people pumping up the stock price if what you want to do is buy the stock if it's going to drop? you? In other words, Buffett never plays down Berkshire, but he doesn't play it up either. And he wasn't playing it up in this letter in the least. And well, that's interesting. Uh, I felt the opposite. Really? You thought he was pumping Berkshire? Yeah, I thought the, the stock I thought price? the letter Oh, not the stock price. No, no. I mean he never does that. Uh at least that I that maybe a long time ago. I don't know. Um no, my, my impression was that it was a lot of kind of, and maybe this is 
to your point that it was more about just talking up the company. I don't know. But to me, what struck me is it felt like it was a letter about legacy. Because he talked a lot about the companies that Berkshire has not only just owned, but the way Berkshire has really shaped um, the major companies that they own. Sometimes he talks about the smaller companies in his letter, and this time he didn't do that. He talked about the big companies. He talked about the railroads. He talked about the insurance, very briefly the insurance, actually, because he's had other letters where he really got into it. And he really talked about Berkshire Hathaway Energy and the um, huge investment that that company has put into greener energy, literal investment, billions. And I just thought, to you know, me, you know it struck me as... Go ahead. I, caught the, I caught the theme was the mid, the middle part of America yeah, is yeah. massively contributing to the wealth of America. It's not all mm-hmm. about the coasts. And, uh, and he just pointed one company after another that has produced enormous wealth for people, and they're built by wonderful people, and they're built by Nebraskans, and they're built by... Yeah. Right? Wasn't that totally so totally. deep on it? I, I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And then Barron's comes out after that letter and he goes, everything was missing from this that was important. You know, what succession and underperformance? You know, why didn't you talk about the underperformance of your shares? This is where I was thinking. It's like, why would he? If he wants to buy his stock back, hmm. you know? And also it occurred to me that Barron's is talking about the last five and 10 years, how his stock has done against the S&P 500 and it's lagged it. And guess what? It Buffett forever, uh, going back 60 years, has been saying that when the stock market's on fire, we are going to lag performance. Berkshire will not be able to compete with a bull market, stock market. And, um, And the reason for that is because what we try to do when we're buying companies is we try to buy companies that are on sale and the stock market is running at a... 2% 2% earnings yield. I mean, it, it ain't on sale. Very hard to buy stuff and very hard uh, to do anything but underperform. And it's been like that for a decade now. So why why would he? I don't know. It just I don't know. I, I've, I just can't think of a time where he's talked up the price of... I guess occasionally he's, he's said, oh, you know, it's at a good book value. I don't know. I think he just kind of stayed away from it this time. Yeah. Barron's was saying like, this was just too much of a trip down memory lane. And I thought he was basically pointing out why we do what we do. Yeah, that's, I took it that right. way. Exactly. Why we do what we do that we've done good things with our companies that we continue to do good things with yep. our companies that we employ people that we've done the right thing. Yep. Um, he pointed out that the uh, new CEO of, is it, BHE or is it the railroad? I can't remember. Is a woman, Katie Farmer. Um, I mean, you know, he. I, I really felt like it was a legacy kind of letter. Look at what I've done. And it would. he would never say it like that or think of it like that even, I, I don't think. I don't think it's about him. But that's, I mean, it is about him for all of us who follow him. And, well, it's, yeah, and Katie, it, is, that's, she is Burlington Northern. But Burlington um, Northern. beyond that, look at, look at how he... I mean, I think this is why I think he was playing it down. He made a thing out of losing, out of writing down $10 billion on precision cast parts, which is this purchase that he made. And then he goes into really quite a lot of mea culpa about having paid too much. It's nobody's fault but mine, but I paid too much for it, you know, uh, in terms of blah, blah, blah. And really, the company just got crushed because why? They're making parts for airplanes and they 
<laughs> Nobody's flying. So it'll come back. What he didn't say was we made a bazillion dollars on Apple. Oh, he did say that. <laughs> well, he didn't really. I mean, he didn't really come out and just go, hey. He said you know, we bought we bought some, what was it, like 5.2% of the company, and then Apple bought some of their shares back, and then we bought some of their shares back, and boom, you guys made an extra billion dollars without doing anything. In the context of the buybacks, yes, but not in the context of we bought it at 100 and it went to 500. Right. Right? right. He didn't say that. He didn't say that this is by far our largest investment and massively overshadows the losses that we took on precision cash parts. Yeah. Most everybody, including me, would do exactly that. And he doesn't. And the reason, honest to God, the reason he doesn't is because he wants this stuff to go down. I really believe it. He's not pumping his book at all. But that's also the way he writes every letter ever. Yeah. This is not. But So when you say like, there's a reason that he's not pumping things he doesn't pump things so i'm a bit confused and there's a reason this he idea. doesn't pump things <laughs> it, it, I, I mean there's there's a reason and he said it so many times it's like if you want if you're a net purchaser of hamburgers you don't want to pump them up and he is a net purchaser of businesses the last thing buffett wants to do is see a market like this like a massive huge bubble and he doesn't want to see that in his own stock either. Um, for more reasons than just, I want to buy my own stock. It's also that it's just, he just feels it's not fair. It, like when people are buying the stock at too high a price, he feels that that's unwarranted and they shouldn't do it. And he's come out times in the past and said, he's just too expensive, you know? Mm. And then of course it turns out you should have bought the hell out of it right there. But um that's Buffett and that's Munger and that's why we love them so much is that they're so yeah. different than everybody else in the world when it comes to this stuff. And they're shrugging off underperformance. It's like, hey, you know, 10 years, so what? You know, maybe, yeah, you should have bought the SPX. If you if you knew where we were going to go, you should have bought the SPX. On the other hand, there's massive untapped value in Berkshire Hathaway. No question in my mind. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so... By the way, you should look at it. I mean, I'm not recommending anything or advice or whatever, but this is a business you should look into and try to understand. It's not a simple business. He owns like 60 or 70 private companies and a whole bunch of public ones. The accounting is labyrinth and hard to understand um, because he's got generally accepted accounting that he's got to do in what amounts to <laughs> a fund. And yeah. Yeah, I liked I mean, the beginning of the letter where he basically like shows how annoyed he is with generally accepted accounting, yeah. forcing him to include all these write downs. <laughs> all the write downs and, and include the market change in the stocks that he owns as part of earnings or not earnings. And it's just unrealized. Like unrealized. And just, yeah. Horror show. So I think that's, that's, I think we had a couple but of I just fabulous end, guys tell yeah. us a couple. Tell us some things that we need to hear over and over again. And I hope they live another 20 years each at least, you know? Oh, yes, please. Please. I mean, I want to say that I have heard from a few people like, oh, it was kind of a boring letter this year. Eh. I really enjoyed reading it. I felt like it was a really like nice boost too. to my value investing practice, to my rule one investing practice. Yes, thank you. It was really nice that. to read a defense of capitalism doing really good things. It was really nice to, as you pointed out, read about 
the middle of America getting a nice shout out and how much people there do. And it just it just gave me the warm and fuzzies. And I think for people doing this kind of practice, read the letter. It's worth it. Yep. It's and not going to break any ground, talk. but that it's, doesn't it it's, it doesn't have to break ground for right. it to be valuable. And then listen to listen to Charlie. It's well worth it. I mean, he says pithy little things like, you know, Jack Ma shouldn't have tweaked the nose of I'm, I'm paraphrasing here shouldn't have tweaked the nose of the Chinese government. He understands what kind of system they're in. In other words, and Charlie's like, and what they're proving in China is that you don't have to be a democracy to have a very successful economic system if you will allow capitalism to be there, right? I mean, so I, I think, you know, it's kind of a bit strange to just say that, you know, Jack got what he deserved if he's willing to do what he did in, a, in the Chinese government system. You just don't do that. So I, I like Charlie because he's so straightforward. And that's pretty politically incorrect right there. He's so a curmudgeonly old man. He's, yeah. yeah, he's fun to watch he's for sure. Watch. The transcript doesn't convey it. That's no. for sure. Go go watch him. He's worth it. You'll get a good education. Yeah. Oh, and last announcement uh, in the Berkshire letter, they announced that the annual meeting will be virtual this year again, which is not a surprise. But it's on May first. May first. And I thought it was so cute because Warren says we all miss Charlie so much last year that the meeting's going to be in Los Angeles, which means that he's going to, he and the, the two henchmen, sort of, they're not henchmen. <laughs> Greg Abel. <laughs> that's, that's how I think of it. probably Ajit, Ajit, Ajit John, Jane. 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 Um, they'll all go to LA because Charlie probably can't travel and, um, and be there with him and they'll be broadcasting from there for all of us. So it was just so sweet. Like clearly he was, he really missed Charlie last year and it was very sweet that he's going to go do that. And, I love and, it. and, and Warren has after all the indefensible, which he can fly there. That's the Is that his, his airplane? Jet. Yeah. <laughs> he, calls <it> the indefensible. <laughs> he does. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally great. This is the guy that picks up pennies on elevators and he just uh, goes on jet. Amazing. He's, he's got like, his exact change for his McDonald's breakfast. Right and on. He's got his got indefensible airplane. <laughs> just not even going to try to defend it. All right, you guys, we got to go. Enjoy reading Enjoy. and watching Time those. All right. Thanks, See everybody. Ya. Bye. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.